Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar today on open data. The article which accompanied this webinar, I dared suggest that data is not the new oil, but the new electricity, by which I meant that data is not like oil, something you extract, refine, and get sold back to you through giant corporations such as Facebook and Google. Instead, it's an ingredient which turns computing into what it's always promised to be, a general purpose technology that changes everything, much as electricity did before it. And it will do that by forcing businesses, large and small, to live minute by minute, hour by hour, with the only reason that they exist in the first place, that is to say, the customer. Am I right? I don't know but I certainly hope I am, because if I am, we're on the cusp of the most exciting surge in material progress since Michael Faraday realized that an electric current could be produced by passing a magnet through copper wire. To test my vision of the future, share theirs and explore how long we must wait to enjoy its fruits, I'm joined by five people who are in their very different ways, massively advancing the cause of open data. Imran Ghulam Husseinwala is implementation trustee at Open Banking, a role to which he was appointed in 2017 by the UK Competition and Markets Authority to ensure the major UK banks implement a standard open banking API to share customer data, as they're obliged to do under the CMA's own retail banking order and under the second iteration of the Payment Services Directive. Imran was formerly the global head of fintech at EY. Sam Seaton, the CEO at Money Hub Enterprise, an open finance technology platform that provides connections to financial institutions and data and intelligence, again via APIs and white labeling, to enable companies to help their customers to better understand, better manage, and better control their money so it can work harder for them and go further. Sam is also a member of the Pension Dashboard Steering Group, which is designing online tools for consumers to access all their pension information in one place. Anna Mazzoni is a board member at the Open Data Institute, which was set up in 2012 by internet founders, uh, Tim Berners-Lee and Sir Nigel Shadbolt to work with companies and governments to prove the value of open data in creating better working economies and societies. She is a senior director at ServiceNow, which helps companies transform manual ways of working and data silos into data workflows and take action on the basis of them. Katrin Herling is CEO and co-founder at The Funding Exchange, a technology provider and platform which aims to use data to digitize the origination of loans to SMEs and the accompanying credit checks efficiently enough to offer quotations inside four minutes and funds within 10 minutes. Harry Weber-Brown is Digital Innovation Director at the Investing and Savings Alliance, TISA, which is the consumer-focused financial services body that undertakes strategic policy and digital work to improve the financial well-being of UK consumers. They have 220 member firms from across the UK's financial services industry and work closely with the FCA as well as government departments. Tizer is leading the Open Savings Investments and Pensions Project, which is opening up access to all savings and investments through the development of industry open standards and associated APIs. In addition to our panelists, we of course have you, our audience, and all of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit their questions and comments throughout this webinar using the Q&A or the chat functionality at the bottom of your screens. As always, I will not be saving them up to the end, but we will answer them as we go along. I'd like to begin by asking each of our panelists to share with us uh, their vision of the future, by which I mean, how important is open data? Not just to our future in the short term, but of the future of capitalism in its entirety. What will the open data economy of the future actually look like? And what can open data do 
to transform the balance of power between large corporations and consumers and between large companies and small companies. Could I throw that batch of very complex questions uh, first at you, Anna? Give us your vision of what the open data economy of the future will actually look like. Thank you, Dominic. And thank you to the Future of Finance for inviting me to participate today in the conversation. Um, well, that was quite a big, uh, there's quite a few points there that you want us to touch on, but let me just kind of start succinctly with, I've been in the data industry for most of my life. I started life as a banker, but worked for quite a long while for Reuters, which everyone would know uh, is one of, is the world's, as I always say, the world's first FinTech, right? And <clears throat> one of the things that I think was interesting about working for Reuters was about watching the evolution of of um, securities in a particular in markets, right? And when you think about the capital markets and think about how securities develop, right? You think about the fact that you have a number of firms that really come together and kind of identify a type of opportunity in the market and they create securities around that. And then they obviously um, post capital for trading those particular securities. And for several years, potentially, uh, the transparency around the data the pricing of that particular security, it's not highly transparent, right? Um, and obviously the margins for the particular capital market participants is quite healthy. But over time, what starts to happen is, and bankers realize this, the more transparent you make a market, the bigger a market grows and the more money that actually gets made from the market over time. So um, I think that one of the focuses around opening up data, and you kind of touched on it when you were introducing all of us, is a lot of it all focuses on finance, but there's so many other places where having access to open data can really um, help our communities and society as a whole. Um, and so I, I believe that one of the ways that we have to look at doing that is by um, leveraging uh, kind of special interest groups, um, uh, what you would call kind of uh, industry groups to essentially organize what the ODI is uh, offering to the, um, to the market, which are data institutions, enabling um, people with like-minded uh, purpose to come together and define how data should be shepherded, so to be data stewards around the access to information. And I think there's a number of uh, places where we can see that that is starting to work or has worked just in the past. I mean, a great example is look at the UK Biobank, right? It's been around since 2006. Over a half a million people make their genetic data available um, with certain provisions around that in, for the vital health research. So I think that in order for us to have a, you know, a more open data society, that we're going to have um, smaller groups that will enable access to certain types of data. And I think that technology, the use of APIs will be, be able to enable the connection of that data. So using your kind of electricity um, example, you have these electric points, right? Which would be your data clusters, right? And then the APIs can connect that kind of information. Now, how you put that API can, uh, infrastructure in, I think is something that obviously still has to be developed and there's still resistance to that. And a lot of the resistance, quite frankly, is about people's attitudes um, around access to data. And I think one of the things that 
is still need is still required, and I think this is where where government can come in and help, is around education, around access to data. So I'll just leave it at that. Those are my opening comments. No, we'll, we'll uh, thank you, Anna. We'll come back to some of the points you raised. Imran, you've heard Anna talk about uh, resistance. You've heard her talk about uh, APIs. You yourself have said that uh, that open banking. Um, the project you're involved in, this live experiment in, in, in open data in one sector of the economy is the best kept secret in financial services. What's your long-term vision of where not just open banking, but open data is going to end up? Thanks, Dominic. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the, for the invitation. Um, I think when I think about open data, um, what I, what I, and I think all of your panelists who come from a wide variety of backgrounds have very, very valid perspectives on this. I tend to think of it more in terms of the individual. Uh, and that's essentially the way that open banking has, has been brought together. And, and I think that there are two really important aspects to that. One is that actually using data, we can make markets work better for individuals and that's citizens and, and small businesses. We can rebalance the market in favor of, of the users of the market rather than just the providers into the market. And I think when you get it right, you can actually open up markets to new entrants, which is great for competition, but crucially as well to new ideas, which is great for innovation. And that's what we're beginning to see here in open banking. But the other aspect, thinking about the individual that is so important, is actually that I think that we all recognize that data is valuable and there really is a human right or an individual's right that sits at the center of all of this. And that fundamental point is very much that the data belongs to the individual, not to the institution in open banking, not to the financial institution, but more broadly. And, and if, the, if we can give individuals, citizens, the power, the tools, the confidence uh, to safely and securely, securely be able to access their data and use it in ways to benefit them, then I think we're really headed in the right direction. So on that foundation would be my vision for open data. Um, and yeah, absolutely, I can see the kind of things that we'd be doing in open banking rolling out into other sectors uh, certainly other products within financial services, uh, and then other sectors more broadly, uh, even potentially going as far as, as big tech. So um, we shall see, it's very exciting. But I think that fundamental principle that we need to put the user or the end user at the center of all of this uh, is, the, uh, is, is what's most powerful about it. Thanks, Emma. I'm gonna come back to that, that point about the individual, the, the consumer uh, in, in a minute, but I'd like to, to, to ask Sam next. Sam, you're on the other side of the, the open banking initiative with Imran and his, and his colleagues are, are driving. What's your vision of where this is going to end up? Where's open data going to, what sort of economy is it going to create? So it's gonna, it's gonna be incredibly disruptive. Um, and I know we were laughing beforehand about how I'm ahead of my time, but I do believe- I You're ahead of your time, you said, Sam. <laughs> I, I do believe the world is catching up. So, um, so really at a really fundamental level, it is about um, us. It's about every one of us. And even more importantly, it's, it's about uh, working to live rather than living to work. So I know that sounds quite uh, broad, but I say it with real meaning because of what Imran has just explained about, it's all about a consumer having their data. And um, to give you an example of what that means in terms of the level of disruption we're going to see, 
is it really does shift the balance between quite a small group of large companies right down to people like me. And, and to give you an example of how I think that will, that, will, that will evolve, that most of us can relate to, is that if you think about uh, open data and my mortgage, I believe that my mortgage at some point will just be up for auction. So whoever wants to take that mortgage today, honestly, knock yourself out. Because I, I, don't, I don't mind who's got my mortgage. Uh, I just want the best rate that's possible for my circumstances. And, and for different institutions, as we all know, they all have different criteria that work for and against them, you know, every day. So what one can do today, another can do tomorrow. So I actually think we're going to see a complete disruption. And that's brilliant for the consumer. I get the best mortgage I can have every day. And for the institutions, you know, they get to lend to a broad group of people in a very, very frictionless manner. And, and, I, and I guess what I would say is that we can't understand that at the moment because it feels like a long way away, but open data has enabled that. That's already on its way. And I say about open data, so why? Because basically I can share my, my, um, my banking transactional data with this, with this auction environment, so with anyone that lends mortgages. I can actually also share my LTV. So what's my property valuation? What's my loan to value ratio? And then on top of that, what's my income? The golden triangle that's needed in terms of someone to be able to lend me money. And then on top of that, what are, what, what are the mortgage rates that are happening? So, you know, take another data feed in there because actually if it's a more expensive mortgage, I don't, I don't want it, right? I'm not going to auction that off. That's what's happening. So what I'm getting at is open data enables things like that to happen. And that's just one use case. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and again, I, we'll come back to that in a second. Um, Katrin, I could come to you next. You've heard both Sam and Imran talk about how this is going to change the balance of power between corporations, large corporations and the consumer. You're involved in a field where you're looking to change the balance of power between large banks and, uh, and SMEs. What is open data going to do or what is open data doing already to that balance of power? Yeah, I think SME um, lending specifically has always uh, been a uh, slightly dark corner where data hasn't actually played a huge role, except that the banks were actually sitting on a pool of incredibly valuable data that gave them live visibility into the trading performance of businesses. And that was the business current account data. Because they had this unique access to data, they were able to assess credit risk quite effectively and decide who to lend to and who not to lend to. But at the same time, putting essentially a fence around that data um, meant that there was very, very little competition in the UK. And so just listening to Sam and the use case around uh, unlocking uh, opportunities for yourself, I think we have seen that same opportunity in the SME space where by essentially opening up access to that data, we've seen uh, competition not just emerge, but competition being able to effectively compete. And the benefits that we've delivered to businesses as a result of using data to empower them is actually that we've made access to finance much, much faster and much less expensive. Um, time to fund it um, prior to the crisis was coming down from weeks to hours. In some cases, we're nowadays able to have money in SME's bank account within 10 minutes. And costs have come down, specifically as costs have come down if you have a good fundable profile, 
where now that you can share your data, actually funders will reward you for having built a good fundable profile and will offer you better rates. So time to funding down by 75%, cost of funding down for 60%. And that's over the course of three years. So the, the benefits of using data to your benefit and being able in a transparent, competitive environment to shop around and select the solutions that are right for you is driving huge benefits. I think what's interesting is um, that the same access to data as we're coming out of, out of this crisis is going to absolutely also be beneficial to lenders who are trying to support their businesses as, as, as they're coming and experiencing a very choppy trading environment. And I think the, the use of data is not just about SMEs getting access to better funding, but actually building more valuable, mutually reinforcing um, relationships between businesses and their lenders, whether they're banks or the alternative lenders. And those are the things that we're really excited about the ability to use data to the benefit of businesses, but ultimately also to the benefit of lenders. Thanks, Ketchum. And, and we'll come back to how enthusiastic the banks are about sharing that data you, you <laughs> referred to. But before we do that, we've also been asked a, a very important, interesting question about what consumers, should consumers be compensated for this, which is part of what we'll, we'll, we'll come to in a second. But before we do that, I'd like to ask Harry. Now, Harry, um, when you and I first, uh, first met, you were involved really in a digital identity project. Uh, and it's certainly become obvious to me that digital identities are now simply part of a much wider a data story and your own work uh, has clearly expanded uh, along the same lines as well. So what, if you, with a particular focus perhaps on digital identity, what's your vision of where the open data economy is going? What's it going to look like in hopefully less than 15 years, Sam's timeline, but what's it going to look like in the future? Thanks, Dominic. Yeah, and thank you very much for inviting me onto the panel. Um, I think the critical thing, certainly from a Tizer perspective, is it's about empowering the consumer, enabling them to have more control over where their data is presented, shared, etc. And I think digital identity, which is obviously, as you quite rightly said, is one program that we're working on building a digital identity scheme for financial services, which enables, you know, within a trusted environment, um, a consumer to um, have their identity credentials stored uh, with an identity provider and then provisioned to financial services at their consent. So critically for us, it's very much around the you know, consumer, consumer's financial well-being, you know, how to enable them to make better decisions, you know, making sure the privacy is baked into that. And I think that's where the trust framework in particular, the work that we're doing in the digital ID are, is absolutely you know, is a key uh, building block for that. Um, I think the other thing I would say, just moving slightly away from ID for a second, is also that it's about industry collaboration. I mean, I think the only way it's going to work is by organisations working collaboratively together. And Tizer is a not-for-profit, you know, we have no skin in the game. What we're trying to do is act as a kind of convening point, bringing our members or those members that are interested in getting involved in both the Open Savings Investments and Pensions project, project but also digital ID. And I think, you know, working collaboratively with Imran's team, with Chris's team at the pensions dashboard, you know, with the government, you know, with this national trust framework, et cetera. I think that's the critical thing. You know, it is around um, working together towards a common end state. So you've got the consumer side about better protections, better access to their data, better control of their data. And then on an industry side, typically our members, you know, it's around uh, innovation, building better services, you know, by providing these kind of key enabling building blocks, 
you know, for them to be able to develop better products, which again, comes right down to a kind of macro level of the UK economy. You know, if we can build the most um, innovative services, you're going to get inbound investments as well. So I think, you know, it, the, I can see there's a lot of opportunity in this. And I think um, certainly Tizer and its members are very excited about being involved in open finance generally or open data. Thanks, Harry. Now we've had a, had a question from uh, Desislav Danov. Uh, shouldn't the consumer be reimbursed for giving access to his his personal uh, personal data? Now, it's a it's a question which opens up quite a lot in my mind. You know, firstly, will consumers and indeed companies you know, want to be paid for a get paid and want to be paid for their data? I remember Jaron Lanier suggesting in one of his books that everyone should be given a micropayment every time they, a piece of their data is consumed by Google or, or Facebook. So. Good question. Uh, should should people be paid for contributing data, however they choose to do that? Um, secondly, a, a question which occurred to me, um, talk listening to you in particular, Imran. What does it mean, and Sam? What does it mean for consumers actually to to control their data? Are they going to appoint third party custodians of their personal information and pay them a fee for uh, safekeeping their data and then disclosing it to whoever they want to buy a product or a service from? Or is it going to be much more dynamic than that? In other words, is this data going to sit out there in a distributed fashion and be accessed by providers that want to sell you a good or a service as they, as they need it? And again, that has clear implications for, for how digital identities are assembled when you, when you need them. Uh, it's good to see you nodding, Harry. So are we, Imran, perhaps you could help me out of this hole I've just dug myself into. Are consumers going to need to be paid? And is this... Uh, open data going to be on a centralized basis through intermediaries or is it going to be on a distributed basis? Okay, so the um, on the first point, the consumer certainly has to receive value for their data. I think I think that that is the definition of being in control. So they're only going to share it if there is value. Um, and that value could be financial. Um, I think probably from where I'm sitting at the moment, we're seeing not a lot of activity in that regard, but what we are seeing is consumers benefiting from um, additional services or better access or cheaper prices. So that's the value proposition that they're they're benefiting from at the moment. And and of course, you know the thing about take open banking, if it is a precursor to open data, is that the information only ever flows um, when the customer, the user, provides explicit consent. And that is um, only ever given if they're comfortable uh, with doing it and um, they can revoke it as easily as they've provided it. And, and what we're trying to do is create a structure where they can have confidence in it because they can see precisely with which other parties that information has been shared. They never have to share any sensitive credentials in, in doing so. So we're trying to create a framework around it that means that they can share their information with other authorized third parties. What we've not done is created something that um, perhaps looks more like the Indian model, the Aadhaar model, which is um, akin to centralizing the information, in particular, uh, in that case, a government-sponsored entity, and that information can be shared from that point uh, out. We, I think we're kind of nervous about centralizing data um, because if one thing we know for sure is that hackers are attracted to data honeypots um, and by keeping it decentralized, you avoid much of the problems associated with that. 
Um, as to whether some of the um, services that come about end up looking more like data uh, bolts, then I think we will be seeing that. At the moment, we're not yet. I think that will require some sort of maturity in the market. What, what we're more focused on at the moment is being able to, customers be able to exercise, exercise a right over the incumbents who currently hold their data and they can share it with whomsoever, uh, whichsoever authorized party they'd want to in a safe and secure way. Mm -hmm. I had a comment here from Nat say, Wiki equals open data is the idea that some data should be freely available to everyone to use and republish as they wish without restrictions from copyright patents or other mechanisms of control. He's quoting Wiki there. Uh, social media platforms, data vendors and high frequency traders are never willingly going to allow this, it's their lifeblood. Witness the Google, Facebook, Australia uh, spat. Um, that's more in the nature of a, a comment than a, than a question, though what happens to Facebook and Google in this model <coughs> about is an interesting question in itself. But perhaps, um, uh, um, Sam, I could, I could tempt you to, to follow up what, what Imran was saying there, uh, which is that, do we, do we um, what does it mean for consumers to have control of their data, one thing? Secondly, we need to make this easy. It seems to be as easy as using the telephone which is kind of what Nat Say is talking about there. You know, it's like picking up the phone. It's not a complicated thing to do. If we have open data services like that, everyone will start to use them. But it kind of has to be painless, no-brainer type of thing. If they have to be asked, give their consent every time something happens. If they have to, you know, there's a question, an observation here from James Zorab. How do you hold the custodian of your private data to account? So if you assume somebody's holding your data, you're going to have to pay them and you're going to have to hold them account to account when they do something wrong. How can we arrive at Sam at a, at, a, at a position that makes consumers able to use open data as a technology in their day-to-day -day lives to, to get their mortgages, pay their insurance, change their bank accounts, change their utility supplier, change their broadband supplier, and be confident it's held securely, their identity is not gonna be disclosed, their privacy is not gonna be compromised, and they're not paying anyone for it. Are we, are we ever going to get there? Is there a model which works? I think it is it's a, a journey and I think it's like any of the, the many books that you read about disruption you have the early adopters you know that, that take to these things but fundamentally open data and what we're doing here is all about the value exchange so to the person who was asking about you know do I get paid for my data it's a very interesting question because I would argue that as we go forward you'll only share your data if the value exchange for you personally is worth it and for each of us, there's a different bar that you'll, you'll have to get over. Um, for some of us, it's very low. You know, I would argue that anyone that's got a Facebook account, it's, it's probably not off the ground. You know, you're, you're very comfortable getting, you know, the interaction you get from Facebook in return for, doing, for, for them to do who knows what with your data, because I, I don't think you actually know. And, and from what I can work out, people don't mind. So that's, that's, that's one value exchange. You know, I, I thought about this value exchange when I... I use Google Maps when when we used to drive around, you know, before before those you know those days when you used to get in your car, and I don't get given an option from Google Maps to pay thirty pounds a year for Google Maps, and Google says I won't share your data or use it. I have no choice. I use Google Maps for free, and they get to do what they like with my data, or I don't use Google Maps. So you know, you make the choice. But I think what's going to happen is there will be more choice. You know, I think there is going to be lots of choice for consumers. And that is always a good thing. You know, competition for me means that consumers have better choice at a competitive rate. And also from my perspective, we take out what I call 
all the people in the value chain that from my perspective add no value. So that's what open data does. We start to take from the consumer to the people that provide the products and services and we bring them together in a way that is you know, genuinely valuable. So that's how I think we're gonna get paid for our data. Okay, but there, there's a the question here of how we actually get there. And that says, as I love the idea of automated service tendering based on open data, I don't want to have to worry about any household insurance, banking, billing and fees. How can we get there ASAP? Do we need smart contracts? We need legislation. Well, we need legislation first. So, you know, Harry obviously knows with Tizer that, you know, he's, you know, well and truly behind on the actually extending, in, in effect, open banking beyond just banking, right? So taking it to the open savings and investment market. So that's that's uh, probably for Harry to, to, to answer, but that, that needs to happen. And then on top of that, take it further. I mean, look at Australia. Australia's gone straight from legislating after the Royal Commission from, you know, in effect, open banking through to open finance, which is the open savings, right through to utilities, water, telephone, which is actually genuinely open data. So it, it does, unfortunately, it does need legislation because I think on these comments here, uh, these big companies are not going to give this data up willingly. They're not going to part with it through, you know, choice. I, I do not see that happening. Uh-huh. So can I just comment on something that some people have said, Dominic, just in terms of to further to Sam's point, I think Harry said it earlier, really, which I, I think there's, I think part of the challenge for people that are focused in finance is they're just so focused on what's going on in the finance industry that they forget about there's all these other industries out here that actually when if they got access to open data, um, they would actually flourish. And I think Harry kind of touched on that a bit. And I'll just give you one example. Um, And I think if banking, by the way, if banking focused on other industries, they they will indirectly benefit from that just because of the fact that they bank those industries. Right. So just taking one simple example here in the UK with open active. Right. It, several years ago, open active supported by um, by Sport England wanted to come together and figure out a way to get people out and becoming more active, right? And more involved in sports. Um, they in, they uh, determined that 20% of the people, 20% of adults did not go out and do any kind of physical activity because it was too difficult to find um, and book online classes. Well, I got involved with this particular project several years ago. Um, through the ODI, because the ODI actually organized an incubator so that they could create a data taxonomy for the sharing of data around sporting events in the UK. Okay, and I thought, you know, this isn't going to work. This is, I mean, yeah, they'll get it going. They'll get some, you know, they'll get some um, app developers, startups in there. They'll kind of develop what they need to develop. They'll figure it out, but it's not sustainable. And actually, I've been proven wrong. It actually is now absolutely working. Um, Sport England has brought together these these, um, companies who are agreeing a data taxonomy. They have now over 100 organizations supporting Sport um, Open Active. And it's now moved from being about, um, you know, sport events per se. And it's now as a result of the pandemic, it's evolved into well-being management. I mean, there's a number of other places where that is is a possibility. And if you look at certain banks, um, Sam, Sam, to your point, how are you going to get paid? Well, certain banks have figured out the way that people are going to get paid is by creating platforms, right? So that 
people can be able to um, exchange data through their platforms and they will be the source by which people will validate each other. And we see this with certain financial institutions here in the UK. So I think that part of this is about looking beyond just the finance industry and thinking about how to, how to um, help other industries be able to share data on an open scale. But Anna, how, do you, how would you address these platforms appear, these intermediaries appear, which you use to, to decide to, to, in effect, intermediate the use of your data by third parties? How do you hold that platform to account? Because in order for you to get on the platform, just like this device, right, that's a platform. In order to get on the platform, there's certain rules by which you have to play. And that platform will validate me via a thumbprint, via my eyes, via a code. And that platform also can be a bank's environment. And for me to get into the bank, and then I can, I have to provide that ID information, but then I get access to lots of different things. So I could actually exchange my electricity um, account. I could exchange my phone's account, et cetera. Through that, it platform. all hinges on, on digital identity, which is which is it still comes back to it. You have to have an identity, you're right. Music to Harry's ears. Can yeah. I just pick up on the point that you made earlier? I think, um, there's a really interesting one. Does the consumer wish to hold their information themselves and manage it, curate it, or do they want a third party to do it? And the market at the moment, certainly in digital identity, is much more on the having a centralized IDP like the post office or UT or someone like that who will manage it on behalf of the consumer. And I think you just need to have a look at the sort of, you know, take up of new services, new forms of technology. You're always going to, you know, you're going to get a few very, very early adopters like Sam, et cetera. And then you're going to get the fast followers and then you're going to get, you know, and it's going to work its way through. And I think the self-sovereign identity, the idea that you as a consumer control all your identity credentials on your mobile phone, you know, there's lots of technologies out there which can do that, but I think there's still quite some way off for the consumer, you know, even the brave-hearted consumer to, to actually want to do that because they want some form of redress. What happens if something goes wrong? What happens if they lose their phone? What happens if they, someone hacks into their identity, for example, and accesses all of their open APIs and, and consolidates all their money and, and puts it into an account overseas somewhere? You know, you, you have an, an, an account takeover. So I think there's still a little bit of time and I'm not saying it won't happen, I think it probably will, you know, but there will always be a case, I think, for centralized services, not, not sitting in a, in a honeypot like Imran's point is, you know, looking at a, a kind of across a distributed network, but, you know, having recourse somewhere. So if I lose my identity or I can't, I can't remember, what, you know, how to set up my open APIs, et cetera, blah, 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 I need somewhere to go to, I want somewhere to call, you know, we are human after all. So I think it's still going to take some time for the, Kind of self-sovereign model to really take off. I think we're we're a little way away from that. Thank you, Harry. Um, now, Imran, I'd like you to address this this question raised by James Orab. Considering the world of Facebook, Twitter, etc., do consumers really care? Can they be bothered? What he's asking, and I'd like you to chip in on this, uh, um, Catherine, uh, from the point of view of SMEs. How do you overcome this consumer apathy? The moment they get this trade with Google and Facebook, here's a free service, but we'll take all your data and we'll monetize it by selling your, your activities to, to third parties. And again, SMEs seem catching to, to sort of stick with their existing bank. Now you, Imran, you've been, you've been working with the open banking um, implementation entity since 2017. Um, is consumer apathy part of the, the problem of, of accelerating progress towards an open banking future, let alone an open data future? I don't think it's apathy 
by any means. I think that there is um, a, a genuine kind of desire to uh, engage more with pe people, for people to engage more with their data and see if there is value um, in doing that. And, and some of the examples, you know, the mortgage example is just a, a, a great example. Um, there are many other reasons why customers would want to engage, engage with this, but it is new. And I think that's, the, anytime there's anything new, it will take a period of time for people to hear about it, for people to get familiar with it and for people to, to trust it. And it's very early in the um, life of, of open banking. Um, in reality, the implementation work still actually isn't yet completed. It should, um, all things being equal, be finished this year. But already we are seeing huge numbers of third parties, so businesses like Catherine's and Sam's, joining the ecosystem so that they can um, make use of this data to provide benefits for their end, end customers. Um, and we're seeing over 300 of those with a very healthy pipeline uh, to follow. And we are actually now already seeing end users, so citizens and small businesses, actually use the open banking APIs. And our latest stats show that um, more than 3 million uh, users, active monthly users, uh, are you making use of open banking enabled products? And that is growing all the time. So I think it is just more a matter of time before consumers engage with this. Um, and like all things, you know, there is something of a J curve. Uh, we saw it most um, obviously in contactless, which frankly bumbled along for many years until suddenly you had the killer app and then suddenly they were everywhere. Um, and I think open banking will have its moment like that because there are soon to be hundreds of different applications for consumers uh, to try and, and make benefit from. So that, that just very quickly, that those hundreds of, of apps you, you're talking about, are those apps making it easy enough for consumers to adopt open banking? Then I'm going to ask you a question about whether the banks are getting in the way, but, but I'd be interested to know whether you think the apps have reached the point now where the consumers, is like, as I say, like picking up the telephone, it's just something two aspects. The first aspect is what is the value proposition of the app? So does it help you better understand your uh, financial position? Uh, if you're an SME, does it help you get access to credit or even maybe chase late payments or you know, satis uh, uh, fill out your HMRC tax return more quickly? So that's the first bit. And a lot of those value propositions are genuinely new to people. So they need to take a view as to whether those are engaging enough. And what we're seeing is a lot of third parties figuring out how to configure those propositions, how to present the propositions, what taxonomy to use to engage with consumers so they genuinely understand it. And there's making a great deal of headway in that regard. Then those things work, the second piece of it, once a link is made, a connection is made between the customer's bank account and that application. And that's the bit that we've worked on an awful lot in the open banking implementation and see to try and get as much of the unnecessary friction out of that journey as possible. And, and one of the developments that we have uh, pioneered is something called app to app redirection, which I won't go into, but suffice it to say that it means that a customer that is using their mobile phone without using any usernames or passwords 
just biometrics and going through a couple of screens can make those connections. Um, I saw my mother only recently, uh, and she's linked all her bank accounts through to her main high street bank. Um, and uh, she did it all off her own bat and hasn't found a, a problem at all. So we're not quite there yet, um, but it is definitely um, uh, an area where we've made a huge amount of uh, progress. Anyway, Sam, I'm sure you'll want to comment on this, but, but Katrin, perhaps give us a sense first of, of what this looks like from a, and bear in mind, we began here by talking about customer apathy. Are SMEs too apathetic to take advantage of the many brilliant apps being put in front of them? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting discussion for me to follow because it actually um, frames questions in a way that we wouldn't necessarily frame them. Um, we come at this from a perspective that is uh, customers have an objective. In our case, it tends to be they want access to funding um, as cheaply and as quickly as possible. We're not coming at it from a perspective of do customers actually want to engage with their data? Nobody wakes up, our customers don't wake up and actually want to connect to open banking. And so when I frame it as how do we actually help customers access funding as quickly and as easily as possible, being confident they're getting um, access to the best offers, it actually becomes about us being embedded um, in trusted partners who may actually contribute additional data. It's not just the open banking data, but it's embedded in cloud accounting solutions. It's embedded nowadays in um, seller platforms where we have access to seller information. So for us, the power of what we're doing is about de delivering against the expectation of our customers, ideally in their native environment. And data is just a way of how we're delivering against those expectations and uh, providing services that um, customers have always used. They probably just haven't used them quite in this easy, simple to access context. We would never try and explain the, the benefit of open banking to our customers because the benefit is actually about the access and the, yeah. the speed of the service that we provide. Yeah, it's like, like explaining how the phone works or the car works. You don't need to know it to use it. That, that was the point I was driving at. Now, Sam, give us, a, give us a sense of what it looks like from the point of view of creating an app aimed at, at, at consumers. Are you in a Sisyphus position pushing this rock uphill with nine large banks trying to push it back down again? What are the obstacles you're coming up against? And is consumer apathy among them? No, it's not consumer apathy. I think it's. I think we've got to focus on the value exchange. And the reason I say that is because as much as we can focus on making, for example, as Imran said, the, the, the slickness of being able to share your data or connect your data, and, you know, that, that is important. I'd, I'd just like to ground everyone a little bit because I'm Australian, obviously, and we have a different way of buying and selling houses in Australia to what you do in the UK. When I landed here and bought my first house, I thought I'll never do that again. Um, but you all do that merrily. I mean, you buy and sell houses all the time and get caught up in the most amazing amount of red tape, bureaucracy, zumping. I mean, you name it, it goes on here. It's like the Wild West when you buy a house here. And, and, and families and people do it time and time again. In fact, I've got friends that have bought five houses. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, it's the worst thing you could possibly do. But I guess my point I'm trying to make is if the value exchange is, is strong enough, people will do anything. They'll jump through hoops. They'll do all sorts. But the value exchange has to be strong enough. So I guess what I'm saying is at the moment, you know, Imran's point is right about it takes a little bit of time you, for, you know, in effect, we've got 
you know, we've got the horse and cart, and the cart's pushing the horse a bit. The products and services have got to evolve to match what an open data economy can provide. And when we see those two things collide, that's when we'll get that J curve, because that's when you get the sweet spot of incredible value exchange, and it is coming. So I, I you know, I just, I think it's, you know, yes, it's right to want to make the process slick, but to be honest, I would argue you could, you could have it terrible, and if the value exchange is strong enough, the certainly in the Brit, the British, the British lot, you'll, you'll, you'll take to it like a duck to water. I've seen it with my own eyes. Okay, so when it when it happens, it will scale very quickly. Now we had a question here from Lee Sagar. How is the ownership of the data determined, or is that an irrelevant question? It strikes me as very far from the relevant question that uh, if we're going to that customers are going to take ownership of their data, you know, what do they own? It's presently scattered across lots of different institutions who might themselves think they, they own it. So is that, a, is that a question you've had to address? Uh, Imran, I'm sure you've, you've had to think about this, but, but Harry, have you had to address that in your um, discussions about digital identity, for example? Who owns this stuff that we're going to use? Yeah, I mean, there's different types of data, isn't there? I mean, you've obviously got the personal data, the person's name, address, uh, et cetera, which, you know, they, what, can they own it? I, I guess they probably can. I'm not a copyright lawyer as such, but, you know, that, that is their personal data. And then you've got product data. Uh, and then you've got their, um, you know, with reference to their personal data, what ownership they have over said products. You know, so it, it, can, it becomes quite sort of quite complicated as to who own, owns which bit of data and where. Um, yes, certainly. I mean, you know, the critical thing for us, certainly in digital ID, is the consumer is always in control of their data. You know, they need to know where it is. And I think there's an opportunity, certainly for open bank, uh, sorry, open finance, open data, you know, to put more control in the hands of the consumer so they can see where that data, their data has been passed through to and have the rights, you know, to have it redacted, redressed, etc. Um, so it is a critical point. I mean, one, one of the things I just wanted to um, pick up on about this, uh, which is related, Dominic, so I should have probably uh, jumped in a minute ago, is some of the research that we've been doing with consumers uh, around um, open savings and investments and pensions in particular, it'd be interesting to hear if anyone's had the same, is that people will go into it and say, look, security is absolutely the critical thing. You know, me as a consumer, I'm not gonna give away my, uh, or, or provide any data, share any data, unless I know exactly what's going to happen with it. And I'm, I'm very, very wary of that. That's what they say. When, they, when you then pr present them with products and you, and, and you make it very, very easy for them, they'll, actually it tends to be convenience, you know, and value exchange tends to be the driver, the motivator. So the security issue can always be the thing that kind of acts as a, as a, a hindrance. So what we found with the user journey work that we're doing both in digital ID and OSIP is you've got to explain what you're doing with people's data. You know, why are you suddenly presenting up you know, an open banking login, for example, as part of a verification process, which is what we're looking at. You know, how do you how do you make sure the consumer realizes where their data is going, what's happening with it, etc. So, I think you know um, it is a critical point, and I think as people become more aware of data and data control and what happens, and you need a few sort of scare stories, and everyone then suddenly sort of you know goes back a generation. Um, I think um, putting the hands, you know, putting the data in control of the hands of the user is the absolute fundamental, but just ensuring that they get the most value out of it. Well, Harry, while I've got your attention, can you answer this question from Dan Feeney here? Where do the panelists land on the SSI, single sovereign identity, I think that's what that refers to, versus federated identity trust model? Have yeah. you discussed this in your group and come to a conclusion? Oh, 
Dominic, we've discussed this one for a number of times, but I'm not, I'm not going to take up all the rest of the time talking about the detail of it. But I, I will say SSNI, self-sovereign identity, the idea that the identity sits on the person's mobile phone, on a blockchain, for example, with a smart contract, is very much the sort of future state, yeah? But the question going back on consumer adoption, is the consumer ready yet to adopt such a, uh, 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 such a model, yeah? Do they still want to have their information stored somewhere where they know they can get hold of it, which is the more federated model. So it doesn't sit on a single hub. It doesn't sit like a honeypot. It sits with a trusted third party, an identity provider, who's subject to the consumer's consent, um, will release that data. And it's a kind of key enabling or building block, I think, for the whole open data architecture, you know, because then you can have it, basically it's like a, a passport or, or a set of keys, which helps you unlock information at the consumer's consent in a trusted environment, you know, underpinned by a trust framework, which is the other sort of critical building block of all of this. Well, James Orab points out that centralized storage of data is a single, single point of failure, which makes him a federated identity firm, I guess. He also asked Jermaine to that point, I still haven't heard who guards the guardians, the, the Chris Custodiate point. So if you do have this intermediated model, um, who's going to, uh, I think you did you did attempt to answer that, uh, Anna, when it was when it was first raised, but you obviously have failed to convince uh, James or that that's that's the answer. That say institution is that what you're talking about? Um, well, we're talking we're talking about um, an intermediated model in which consumers appoint some organisation to to safeguard their information and then make it available to whoever needs to see it. When you were talking about the mobile phone as a platform. You, you were referring to the fact there is a protocol to, to access the services that are available through that phone, you have to identify yourself and so on. His concern is um, who is who is checking the, the checkers as it were. So it's all very well for Apple or, um, or Android to, to, to have these protocols, but who's, who's checking them? We'll come to the question of regulation. We're down to our last 10 minutes, but we'd love to talk a little bit about regulation and law as well uh, in a minute. So, so think about that, but just also listen to this comment from Nat Say as well. Could some high value, high confidence brands step in to provide a custody service for my personal data and only release what I permit to the services I use? The multiple EULA agreement model is not a fit for purpose model today. Consumers should not need lawyers in order to keep their data safe. Um, so sounds like he he's a fan of the centralized model. Uh, James Orab is a fan of the federated model. Um, I don't know. I mean, Imran, perhaps you and Anna, perhaps Anna, you go first on this point. And Imran, I'm sure you've got some observations on it too. Should we? Who guards the guardians? So. I, so I, I just don't believe in silver bullets. I don't believe in one authority. I believe that it's, you know, I believe that, you know, as long as I trust Apple, right. As long as they have my trust, I, and I can be confident around how they're sharing my data and they're asking me around how they share my data, then I will use this platform to share data. Mm -hmm. However, um, even the apps within that platform have to have some way of conveying to me that they are, um, you know, good stewards of my data. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was talking about earlier when I uh, mentioned the use of data institutions. So you call them what you want. I think, Harry, you referred to them as data trust or someone referred to them as data trust. You know, data institutions where 
you know, and where people come together and they agree how data will be um, managed, you know, how it will, under what terms will it be shared? What is the governance around it? You know, how it will, what kind of activities can it be used for? And that's where I think that we will have, I mean, you know, micro, micro kind of uh, data institutions, and we will each choose to be a part of different ones because they will have, they'll have, we'll ha each have different interests. Imran, can we perhaps move forward a bit from here? Because I'm sure you, you, you've thought about this. We're, we're down to our last seven minutes now about law and regulation in the area of data. You know, the European Union has passed the GDPR, so it's a, it's a framework of sorts. But to accelerate the open data revolution, which we're discussing, what sort of law and regulation would be helpful? And if you like, what would be unhelpful? So what, what sort of government action would really help to drive this revolution forward? Sure. Um, so I, I think that the, the GDPR, I know it gets a lot of flack, but it's not bad. Uh, and it's not bad, at least insofar as um, enshrining some principles. And, and one of those principles around data portability underpins open banking, but there's many other good things in there. I think many people will correctly argue that it was um, it could do with a redraft um, the because it is still cumbersome um, and it doesn't always get you the kind of outcomes that the authors thought. Um, and I do think that the UK government will be looking at it very carefully to be thinking how do we build upon it. And, and one of the benefits I think of, of building upon it is that um, you can really, I think we're, we're beginning to get to a stage of maturity where you can determine what the point of it is. Is it to mitigate risk? Is it to safeguard privacy? Is it to unleash the opportunity of data? Well, look, it has to be all three of those things. Yeah. Quite how it strikes the balance in legislation and then quite how it's enacted in practice, I think is, is the skill for it. But we're kind of ready. So I'm, I'm excited to see further activity in that particular area. I think in the area of identity, um, the, we're, we're probably not far off needing some sort of um, authorized entity, regulation that creates authorized entities such as identity providers. And, and I think that will have the benefit of A, helping industry kind of know what's what and figure out how the ecosystem is gonna work. And, and B, providing consumers with some sort of confidence, because we do know that consumers do prefer to work with authorized entities rather than unauthorized entities. And I personally see it in everything I do working with the FCA to the Charity Commission. Um, so I think that that, that is um, uh, going to be necessary. Um, and of course, the other thing that is imminent uh, is the work around smart data that Bayes are doing and they've already announced that they will be seeking primary legislation probably at the end of towards the end of this year that will give the powers to regulators so that they can do in other products and sectors what we've done in open banking and um, uh, whilst consumers may not really see that kind of legislation up close um, i think without that mandate you won't get the kind of movement that that the other sectors uh, need 
um, but that's imminent as well. So those those would be, be my three top picks. Is, is there a jurisdiction on the planet Earth that you think is getting this right? Sam mentioned Australia. Is there any other example we should look at? I, I really like what the Australians have done because they have managed to take a lot of the debate out of their version of open banking because they started with the vision and then explained to industry that actually banking was going to go first and then there was going to be a whole slew of other sectors to, to follow. We've not done that here in the UK and it's made our life a lot harder for it. Are we, starting, the, are we not, Imran, we're not starting with energy and insurance, right? That work is happening, right? It's not happening yet, really. I mean, there's activity around it, but I'm not sure that anyone could hand on heart say that here's a roadmap in the way that the Australians have a roadmap that says the consumer is going to be able to access their data, share it with authorised third parties on this date in the future. Um, and uh, um, I, I, it's a shame that we don't have that. I think we are going to reverse engineer something onto that, onto what we've created already, probably in the next six months. So I'm hoping for a lot more clarity around that. And that, that's a definite cause for excitement. Um, when it comes to the implementation of some of this kind of stuff, I do think we are ahead of, ahead of the world. So there's one thing getting the legislation right, then there's doing something about it. Okay. Um, Harry, um, Imran's been very lucid about what government actions are taking place, what government actions needs to take place. But when I look at what the UK government has done with digital identity, I don't feel hugely confident that their ability to get this right it strikes me as a, a mess with far too many people involved am i being unkind um i think historically it's been uh a little bit confused as to what their engagement is with the uh private sector they focus very much on gov.uk verify but they've split the portfolio now between uh what will be the internal government identity assurance program the replacement for gov.uk verify which sits in gds government digital service but the DCMS are being very active in developing a national trust framework, which will be the underpinning of which other schemes, such as ours, can utilise the policies, the framework, etc., to enable interoperability across multiple different sectors. So I think there is a, <clears throat> a bit of a step change within government to make this available, um, as in you know, providing the accreditation scheme for schemes, um, um, happening and that's happening over the course of this year so I think kind of watch this space but Matt Warman who's the digital infrastructure minister is very much on top of this and I got had a session with him last week uh, and I've, I've read that I mean it's, it's out it's, the alpha is out for uh, consultation at the moment and I would certainly recommend reading it. it's a bit light on detail it focuses on you know things like certification etc but not down to some of the nitty-gritty issues that indeed the financial services industry need to focus on things such as liability um, <clears throat> reliance, uh, etc. So, but it's step by step, Dominic. I think there is definitely a step change within government to facilitate the setting up of identity schemes across different sectors, of which we would be one for finance. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's good to know. Uh, there's uh, focus on it at the highest level. But, uh, um, but we're, we're sort of almost out of time, but I think we should run on for five minutes. I hope you can all stay. Um, uh, James Spender has said Imran noted the unintended policy consequences of GDPR. Uh, open banking 1.0. What will be the unintended consequences of open finance? Now that's a really difficult question. I know Sam is dying to to answer it, and then and then Catherine will give us a, a sense for well, what's the unintended consequences of doing this. What are the dangers? Uh, well, I I'm 
I'm all for the positive side. So I, I think that what we're doing at the moment is archaic, out of date, dangerous, unsecure and rubbish. I mean, I just, I just don't understand any of it. So unfortunately, I, I, I think the unintended, unintended consequences are only going to be better than, than what we've got at the moment. But I, I guess to be more serious on a, on a more serious note than that, I, I think it's very difficult always to appreciate. I mean, we, we talk about how open data is, is, is the new electricity, which I, I do believe that. Um, sadly, somebody agrees with me. That's great to know. So, but sadly, new, but, but, but perhaps you know, electricity also has brought on, you know, potentially the accelerated, you know, kind of destruction of the planet. So, you know, you, you know, how how far do you go? You know, how far do we take this? I think is really what I would say. And and just on our, just to end on the um, on the ID note. I mean, is it going to be that actually, you know, COVID is going to trump there, and actually it's your vaccine ID that we can tack everything onto in terms of you know ID and you know verification process? Because you know the world, the world as we know it has changed, and I think it's very difficult to know what consequences of things that happen. I, I think it's very difficult to predict. So, Catherine, as you look, as you look at your the world you're addressing with with open data, are there consequences which you fear maybe unintended and maybe they could be good, they could be bad, but what are there things you see happening which were not part of our intention in making data more freely available? Um, there are there are a couple of things. Um, I think um, the move for, for us from open finance to open data uh, potentially has a risk that we're just starting to grapple as a society with um, having built infrastructure and started to build um, validation and categorization of data and just about to be able to interpret the data, we're throwing a lot more into the pot. It feels for us as a society, actually, uh, the real benefits will be unlocked from being able to use the data effectively through interpretation using it, for example, in our use case, um, to drive affordability models that um, allow lenders to moderate their loan repayments based on how a business is trading in real time. So there are lots of use cases that require us to really engage in depth with data to deliver those value propositions by opening up more data sources. And it, it almost feels like we're moving on and we're not done yet. Um, I would almost like us to, to take a pause in terms of unlocking more data and really unlock the value from what we have. And at the same time, put around the data that we already have access to, put, put some protections around it. Um, we have seen how um, access to data can does not always just uh, benefit the business. It can actually, in our case, there are cases where providing more data may actually lead to a detrimental outcome. Um, and we've seen this in the last financial crisis, not through open data per se, but where banks were live watching performance of businesses and were reacting as business performance deteriorated by increase, increasing the cost of funding. So having that live visibility into trading performance of a business, if you use that to then increase the stress on the business by increasing cost, um, you're probably coming to a detrimental outcome for everyone involved, um, which we've seen and has led to quite a bit of, of uh, court cases as a result of it. So we are still figuring out on one hand how to use the data effectively and focusing on what we have is important in my mind, but equally being very conscious that more data is not a 
equivalent to better outcomes for everyone. And working through the ethics of how data is being used in this context will take time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely take time. Yeah. Okay, that's a, that's a very helpful thought. We now, we now are over time. So I'd just like to, to ask each of you a, a, a final um, pair of questions, actually, partly because I'm just I'm sufficiently vain to want to know if I'm right that um, open data is a general purpose technology like electricity. Sam's already answered that question, but I'd like each of you to tell me whether you also think that it's a general purpose technology going to change everything. That's my one question. That's just a yes or no. Um, or, or you could say it's too soon to say if you want, you want to cop out. But the really important question is, what's the one thing that you'd want everyone who's listening to this, this panel discussion to remember uh, which can do most to accelerate progress towards an open data future. And could I ask you, Anna, to uh, address those questions first? Is this a general purpose technology? Is this the new electricity? And um, what's the one thing you'd like to see happen to accelerate progress towards the, the vision you all outlined at the outset? So I do believe it can become a general purpose technology. I think it's gonna take us uh, quite a few years to get there. The one thing that I would say that I see time and again whether it's in the consumer world or in the B2B world, it's around education. We have to educate society around the benefits of open data. And I think until we get that, it doesn't matter how advanced technology is, people are not gonna feel comfortable to start using data the way that it it could benefit all of us. Have you got some ideas about how we should educate people? Obviously, things like what we're discussing today are helpful, but should we have a more formal program and the work you're doing, shoot, for example? Yeah, I think. Well, I think what the you know what the UK government does partially in terms of funding the ODI, I think is very powerful. I think it has to start in schools. I think it has to you know kind of an education level right there with uh, with kids and through universities, through the ICO and what they do. Um, and then just generally, it's in businesses' best interest to educate the market around the benefits of open data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's why I was saying that when banking starts to, un- when banking opens up, right, and when they, when they open up a market and they make a market more transparent, they, markets grow. Uh, it just, it, it's always happened. I know many, all of you guys are in banking. You, you know what, what happens when you've got more transparency, all more, um, you know, all boats rise in the tide, right? So I think that uh, banking could help quite a bit in terms of, um, of education, educating the community. Thanks, um, Anna. Sam, you, you've heard Anna say, um, it does take a bit of, you know, you understand this and are passionate about it, but it does take a bit of mental effort to get there as the meaning of, of open data. What's the one thing you think we should do to accelerate progress towards it? Anna's mentioned education. What's your tip? Uh, products and services. I mean, you, you go back to your electricity analogy, and I suspect if we went back in time, there was a lot of people that really didn't understand electricity at all. And it really wasn't until things like hot baths, you know, dishwashers, which we still love today, mm-hmm. until things like that arrived, which were only enabled through electricity, did consumers really take to that mode? And I, I, I do think that's what I would challenge the industry to, you know, to do, which is to come up with products and services, which I think, you know, Katrin, that's what, that's what she and her company, that is exactly what they're doing. So, you know, it is happening, but the speed at which it happens will, will determine how fast we embrace this, this, this new this new era that we're in 
Mm-hmm. Harry, as Sam says, partly an engineering problem. It took 50 or 60 years to build engines small enough to have dishwashers and hoovers and <laughs> glass and things, you know. So hopefully we'll progress faster than that. But what's your tip as to the one thing we should be doing? And don't forget to answer my question about where, is this a general purpose technology? Um, I think it will be general purpose, te- general purpose technology. I think, you know, generations to come, it'd be like identity, open data. It's just, it just runs, you know, through the back. You know, the, the, the consumer doesn't really understand or doesn't need to understand how the mechanics of it work. And I think so, yes. And I think the critical thing is, actually, I think there's two things for me. Open standards, you know, make sure the plugs all fit into a common set, taking the electricity analogy, into, you know, the common set of uh, uh, tooling. Um, and I think collaboration would be the other big thing. I mean, we're a very open organization. You know, we, we, are, we share what we're doing with organizations and, and consumers and what have you. But I think the collaboration piece, you know, with the regulator, trade bodies, organizations, and obviously industries. And I think, you know, building on the successes that are already are in play, raising awareness back to Anna's point, you know, how do we make sure the consumer is aware of this and, and to Sam's point around the product, and also to prevent duplication, because what we don't want absolutely is the Betamax VHS walls you know, from the 70s, which I do just about remember. Catchin, <laughs> um, before we come to Imran for a last word, Catchin, what's your, what's your, um, is this a general purpose technology and what's your tip for making it happen faster? Yeah, absolutely. It is general purpose in my mind. I think we all as a panel probably agree. Um, what is absolutely critical to the future successes, actually two things that I would point at. Um, one we talked about in terms of trust, consumer trust, in the way um, they can trust us working with their data and the regulation there is absolutely critical. I am actually a friend of GDPR. Um, there are probably not many, but it's it's the counterbalance to give, giving us access to more data is holding us to account for how we're treating the data and how we account for how we use the data. The second piece is apart from building this trust is focusing rather than on the infrastructure. We've come through a period where we focused on building connectivity and and the big um, transmission lines for open banking and starting to build um, some of the validation and and, um, um, very light interpretation layers of the data. I think the the next phase of open banking and the toasters and the fridges require us to be innovative in a new way. And they require us to use the data to drive better outcomes for customers. And that's really where I think I would like the focus to be rather than on the infrastructure. We should start getting excited about those use cases and support those use cases as well. Uh, we think regulators, again, have a role to play. So the FCA is stepping forward and talking about affordability for customers being central to treating customers fairly is an important part. We now have the tools to actually support this. So I do believe that that future of using data to the benefits of customers will build the trust, will build the use cases, and will actually lead to greater and faster adoption. Thanks, Katrin. Now, Imran, you, you, the unenviable task of, uh, of seeing us out of this, this webinar, you've heard what, what your fellow panelists have said, education is, is important, engineering, working products is important, uh, Harry mentioned standards, and we've just heard Katrin speak about the need to build trust through law and regulation, among other things. What's what's the one thing you think we can do to really make this happen more quickly? I um, uh, it's, it's been a great panel, and um, I think I think the thing is, government needs to get on with it. And and the reason I say that is because 
Um, this open data is, or at least data anyway, is inevitable. And frankly, um, if government doesn't get ahead of it and lay down some really important um, foundations, then I think private enterprise will have a field day. And, and we've already seen what big tech can do um, in terms of using the data, but in a self-serving uh, way, creating networks, ecosystems that are essentially walled off um, and creating all sorts of problems further down the line and not really necessarily working in the best interests of consumers. And, and I think every industry in this digital world will increasingly or can increasingly see the benefits of doing that. And if I think governments don't get ahead and or we as society get ahead of this and determine what kind of a digital world we wanna live in, um, soon it will be too late. Uh, and the genie will be out of the bottle. And it's very hard to put that genie back in once it, once it is out. So uh, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think we've learned from big tech and we're now going to um, deliver a society, a data-driven society that we want, certainly in some of these other sectors. So what we need is a new Lord Mansfield to rewrite commercial law to express what business is, is doing to enable transactions, to enable these developments to happen, but not in a way that allows very large corporations to exploit consumers and small companies. And we need that now. I think Can that's I, right. You haven't answered my question about, is, is, is data a, a general purpose technology? So I, I don't like the analogy with electricity, which is why I didn't answer it. <laughs> I, do, I do think that data is all pervasive in the way that electricity is. Um, but uh, I'm a bit wary about drawing too many analogies from electricity. And certainly when I look at the electricity grid, the network, the contribution it's making to uh, green technology or not, um, I'm not sure I'm going to hold it out as, uh, as being the nirvana that perhaps uh, you might otherwise think. Okay. Thank you for that, that final thought, Imran. I think we really must stop now. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Imran from Open Banking, Sam Seaton from Money Hub, uh, Anna Mazzoni from ServiceNow and Open Data Institute, uh, Captain Herding from the Funding Exchange, and Harry Weber-Brown from Tizer. But for now, it's goodbye for the six of us, but I must thank you, of course, our, our audience for your questions as well. But goodbye from us, and thanks for being with us. <laughs> <laughs>